0: The one thing I'd say to people as well, it always feels like today is going to be like tomorrow, that's not the way it actually plays out, and opportunities do come along.
1: No, I think that was very elegantly put, I think. Sometimes if the answer of what to do isn't obvious, that's okay.
2: All right, welcome to Generational Arbitrage. I am Tyler Neville, sitting down with Dan Rasmussen, the CIO and founder of Verdad Advisors. He's here along with Greg Obenshain, his partner and director of credit at Verdad as well. Verdad is a quantitatively empirically driven research shop that invests across all assets. They are serial callers of market bullshit and aren't afraid to be iconoclastic voices in a sea of lemmings. I hope you guys like that intro. So welcome. Love it. Thanks, Tyler. Hey, guys. I wanted to invite you to a special event we're having from August 11th to the 13th in Bretton Woods, New Hampshire. We're going to be talking about the future of the monetary system at a very historic venue, too. We're going to have speakers like Mike Green, Lynn Alden, Pippa Malgram, Grant Williams, Dan Tapiero, Jeff Booth, and a variety of others. And maybe we'll even have a special guest as well. So uh, come join us. I'm really excited about it and uh, hope you're there. So why don't you give me a brief background of like what Verdad's strategy is and how you guys
1: manage money? Yeah, sure. So we started out, um, uh, I started out at Bain Capital and our original idea was to, replicate private equity in public markets and what we viewed as the drivers of private equity excess return, which were buying small, cheap, levered companies. Um, we've expanded since then, we've expanded into credit and brought on Greg, uh, who was formerly at Apollo, to run a high yield fund for us. Uh, and then we've also gotten really into the question of cycles, uh, and I think the first thing that led us there was the dramatic outperformance of small cap value coming out of the last two crises, the 2015. Uh, oil price sell-off and then COVID, uh, and realizing that you know market cycles can dictate short-term factor returns in a big way, uh, and so we've been devoting a lot of our research efforts to understanding how the macro and the business cycle uh, relate to factor returns and how different asset classes perform. So we managed uh, reached about seven hundred AUM, uh, seven hundred million AUM this year, uh, and we are um, about six of six employees and hoping to continue to grow so that's the perfect size
2: and and with not too much of a overhang from your compliance department so you can actually speak really <laughs> stuff it's one of the things that I've, I love doing when uh, interviewing pod you know podcast guests is a lot of the people that have these giant you know infrastructure internally just like can't say anything real and so you end up just tiptoeing around any real issues for like, you know, an hour and you know
1: <laughs> <what happened. laughs> yeah. we we'll provide very generic views that uh, in which we say absolutely nothing about anything and don't offend anyone. That's going to be a very Exactly. Conversation.
2: Hence the generational arbitrage. They're usually like <laughs> boomers. So <laughs> no offense to boomers. Um, anyway, let's start super macro. Can you talk about the investment industry, how it's set up, kind of the stretch for yield phenomenon? and what you guys are seeing from that perspective?
1: Yeah, I think there's, um, you know, right now, if you thought of what are some of the big problems or risks facing investors, um, you're looking at a market in which you have, I think, very richly valued, perhaps overvalued U.S. equities. Uh, Conversely, you have very low yields uh, on bonds and other fixed income um, assets. And I think investors are faced with the problem of what to do in a richly valued, potentially low return world uh, where inflation uh, is a potential risk going forward. Uh, and I think that poses a, a, a bunch of, un, you know not unique problems, but problems we haven't necessarily had to face in the U.S. for the past 30 years. Um, They're therefore novel. Uh, and I think if you look at what the answer has been Um, over the past 30 years as to what you should do with your money. The answer has been to be very equity biased, right? Um, uh, It's been to bet on deflation. Uh, And I think if you, you know, the last decade was the best decade, I think, ever for the 60-40 portfolio in terms of Sharpe ratio. Um, So that balance has played out really nicely. But if you start to go into a world where you're dealing with um, overvalued U.S. equities, Right, or you're starting to deal with inflation, putting pressure on bonds. You know, that's a very, very different market in which I think a lot of the uh, traditional answers aren't going to work. And I think you know what you've really seen in this environment: the the most common answer that people have given uh, is just to load up on more equity risk, and especially to do that in private markets, take on more private equity, more venture capital. Um, And I think that's so, so risky. You know, markets um, are to some extent inelastic, and so flows that go into different parts of the market affect valuations and valuations determine or have a big impact on expected returns. And if you look at private markets, which are the most inelastic and the most uh, 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 illiquid, right, um, you've seen a massive inflow of capital and with that a massive increase in valuations. Um, And gee, you know, when you try to sell that stuff or if money ever starts flowing out of that asset class, you know, it's, it's, it's pretty tough right it's Ill- illiquid and so that same inelasticity that hurt you that benefited you as money was flowing in will hurt you on the way out um, and I think that's a very very scary place to be
2: so you kind of quantified the four quadrants of investing can you talk about those right now in and what you're seeing um, from the macro perspective
1: sure and I, I, I would I wouldn't say that I, I quantified them Tyler I, I, I think uh, yeah. the team uh, so, so, no, not even the team. I, I think someone someone once told me. Uh, actually, this was my my one of my uh, one of my boss at Bridgewater uh, when I was in uh, in college, and, and he told me uh, he said, "Dan, you know the problem with you is that you're not a creative thinker. You're a synthetic analytic thinker. You read a lot and synthesize ideas, but you don't come with any ideas of your own." So this is a perfect case of me being a synthetic analytic thinker and not a creative one. Uh, the four quadrant approach is an old an old old framework. Bridgewater, Hedgeye, and others have done much more work than we have uh, on that framework. But I think the the very simple idea is that you can have um, that growth and inflation are what matter to asset class returns, right? So if you're thinking about growth, equities are gonna do well when growth is rising and do poorly when growth is falling. Um, Fixed income is gonna do well when there's deflation and it's gonna do poorly when there's inflation. Commodities are gonna do well when there's inflation and bad when there's deflation. Some commodities are growth sensitive like oil and copper, others aren't like gold. Uh, And so once you start to think of the world through that lens, and then you say, well, gee, how can I plan for the future, right? Um, I don't know what's going to happen in the future. I don't know how similar the future is going to look to the past. So I don't want to rely on historical correlations or covariances. I don't want to just say what's been working recently is going to work again. Um, Rather, if I say, well, you know, we could have four different scenarios. We have rising growth, falling growth, rising inflation and falling inflation, and and that sort of four quadrants. Um, where those cross-hatch, right, that lends you to a way of envisioning the future distribution of potential macroeconomic outcomes and then trying to make sure your portfolio is prepared um, to deal with that. And what you see with most institutional investors to sort of loop back and actually most hedge funds uh, uh, is that everyone is loading up on equity risk. And and the reason they're loading up on equity risk is because equities are the best performing asset across the full cycle. Um, But when growth falls um, in Quadrant three or Quadrant four, either growth falls when inflation's rising or growth falls when there's deflation, equities don't do well. And so as a result, people that have really equity-biased portfolios really struggle in those environments. Um, and I think there's a need for people to think about, gee, you know, what can I do to prepare for, what should I do to prepare for stagflation? What should I do to prepare for uh, recessions? Um, and I think if you look at the two decades in which the 60-40 portfolio returns zero, uh, over a decade. It was the 1970s when you had stagflation. Um, and it was the 2000s. We had two recessions, right? And so I think those are real possibilities, right, in, in the sort of role of the macroeconomic dice, that the 2020s um, or the 2030s, you could end up with the 1970s-like roll of the dice or 2000s roll of the dice. And if you're not prepared, you could be looking at very extended periods in which your portfolio returns nothing. Um, and I think that's that's where I think there needs to be a mindset shift. Yes, equities are the best performing asset. Yes, you should overweight in equities, Um, but the portions of your portfolio that are not in equities, uh, you ideally want them to be diversifying to equity risk, which means diversifying to the growth exposure, right? Things that are gonna work on growth isn't working. And the 60-40 portfolio actually is nice in that sense, right? Like at least you've got a big bond weight that's gonna do well in quad four when uh, there's deflation and, and falling growth. Um, but so much of the endowment model, which is so hot today, um, says, hey, take your equity, long only equity, keep your long only equity, and then take what was your fixed income allocation and all and, and allocate it to private equity, venture capital, um, and you know, basically equity hedge funds, right? And you've totally destroy your diversification. Now you've got nothing that works in stagflation, you've got nothing that works in quad four when there's a recession, right? Um and I think that's probably the loop back you know, that's what the reach for yield is, is is adding to, right? It's people taking more and more and more equity and growth beta risk um, and not thinking, mm. what are the risks if my portfolio, if we don't see the same economic roll of dice that came last decade? What if things are different? Uh, and I think that's a, a big, big problem.
2: So it's generally pro-cyclical rather than counter-cyclical, which is exactly how you guys invest
1: uh, a lot of the time. That's right, and we've we've, the- we've we've really focused on that. We've raised money when the uh, uh, markets were bad, and we've returned mm-hmm. money when markets are good, and uh, and we hope to continue doing that.
2: And so, like on the the stretch for yield stuff, as you know, the the pension funds get more funded, they actually move up the capital structure and want to invest in more bonds. Correct. So it even creates this. M- this even more pro-cyclical effect at the end of cycles where, you know, you shrink the float of of the bond market as pension funds allocate even more higher up in the capital structure. Is that sort of what's happening right now?
1: Yeah, I think it's a little different. I think that a lot of what the allocators do, and you can track this and fund flows to have is that they tend to uh, be procyclical in their asset allocations. So when equities are doing well, they allocate more to equities. And when, uh, you know, when equities are doing poorly, they actually uh, increase their allocation to fixed income or at least reduce their allocation to equities. So, um, and I think if you think about, think about sort of the, um, uh, Andre Schleifer has done a lot of work on this. Why people do that? It's because you, your sense of the probability distribution of potential outcomes is shaped by, call it the last three years of your recent memory. Um, and if all you can remember in your recent memory is that stocks have been ripping and interest rates have been rising because the economy is doing so well. So bonds have been kind of shaky.
0: Right. You're thinking, why, you know, why have I been
1: keeping 40 percent of my portfolio on in fixed income? Right. Like, gee, what a waste of money. Um, why don't I keep allocating more towards equities or in this strange market where interest rates in some sense should be rising. Right. The economy is doing well, but rates are being artificially held low. Um, people even more do so. They're even more, sales take money out of fixed income and allocate even more to equities, right? It's creates, uh, and, and, and then equity market valuations get pushed up, and then you have this kind of strange conversation with people where um, where they say, well, yields are really low, so I'm not interested in fixed income. And you say, well, equity valuations are really high, um, so shouldn't you not be interested in equities? You know, like, do you really think there can be a total disconnect where, like, that somehow the equity risk premium is like materially higher whenever interest rates are lower, right? I mean, it's just, you know, some of these assumptions just don't hold together when you walk through them.
2: So this brings us to your crisis investing thesis, which is uh, kind of the best returns happen at, at big inflection points, and you talk about the difference between bubbles and crises. Can you, can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah.
1: So, you know, and this, this sort of comes to the question of market timing, right? I think it's sort of heretical. Everybody says, hey, market timing is impossible. You can't market time, blah, 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 right? Um, and we're all, that's drilled into our heads. And, and, I, and we have a different view, right? I think we have a different view specifically about crises. Um, we think you can market time a crisis. What does that mean? We think you know when you're in a crisis, right? It is obvious, okay? The market is drawn down 20%. Your grandfather's calling you to ask you if he should, ask you if he should sell out all the stocks. Your grandmother's wondering if we're going to of the Great Depression. Um, The newspaper headlines are blaring Um, three or four of the fund managers that manage money in your style just went out of business. Right. That's a crisis. Well, what do you do in a crisis and how is that different from a non-crisis? Well, I think what's different is that you either believe the economy, the US economy is going to recover or you don't. And if you believe it's going to recover, that means you're going to have a period of very rapidly rising GDP growth and low inflation for a, a decent amount of, peor, a decent period, right? And what does well in those types of environments is the most pro-cyclical, most pro-risk things you can do, which is small value stocks um, and high yield bonds. And the more you can load up into those high risk asset classes, and by the way, dump all your flight to safety assets, right, you know, in, on March 23rd, you should have sold all your, like get out of all your treasuries, right? Like, and dump all that money into small cap value. want well, dump all that money into high yield, right? because you're getting paid such a massive risk premium and if your issue is low returns right um, well the nice thing about volatile markets is every three to five years you get offered a really high return environment and that's a crisis right if you have money to go and buy high returning assets there's a time every three to five years like clockwork when you can come out and buy those high returning assets at crazy discounts Um, and the reason people don't do it is because the psychological impact and the uh, recency bias and the way people extrapolate recent things into the future Um, uh, uh, leads to this sort of panic selling. Uh, And I think that's our view, right? And and I think that's what led us into thinking more about the business cycle and thinking about market timing in the sense of using macro signals, right? I think we started from saying, hey, you just choose the best buy and hold investment and hold it forever. Um, And, you know, over the long-term, there are lots of things that are true, right? Over the long-term, equities beat bonds. Over the long-term, small cap values, the best performing equity style. But over the medium-term, A lot of those things aren't true. Over the medium term, small cap value certainly hasn't been the best performing style, right? Um, There were lots of over the medium terms when bonds were beating equities. Um, And I think that got us focused on, well, what are the predictors of short term outcomes such that the short terms add up to winning in the medium term and that adds up uh, to winning in the long term. And I think that requires um, navigating through the business cycle and being very aggressive when there's a crisis and being diversified and being careful and being cautious when Debt markets are open and yield, you know, yield spreads are really tight, and everyone else is bullish.
2: Really, really fascinating. And just to pump your tires a little bit, at Verdad, you guys were talking about how credit spreads were really tight going into the pandemic. You know, hey, now is the time, and you you patented this term called "fools yield," which you know, Greg, I'd love to ask you on, but you really tiptoed that. Uh, incredibly well, and then your your crisis investing thesis panned out like maybe a month or two later, almost perfectly. And I don't know your exact performance, but I gotta imagine if what you're saying externally mimicked what what was happening internally, you killed everybody else. But, so, uh, we,
1: we just moved into a nice new office here, so I'll say that uh, <laughs> uh, no comment on, nice. on the question of returns, but things are things have been good for us, but. Um, But I'd love, you know, to bring Greg in into the conversation here because, you know, he wrote a a very if you if you look at the pieces and we write our our weekly research, if you're not a subscriber, we'd love for you to subscribe. I know you are, Tyler, but um, but to the audience and Greg wrote uh, a series of sort of eerily prescient pieces, I think, uh, uh, in. January, he wrote a piece on triple Cs and all about uh, how you shouldn't be investing in triple Cs in January of 2020, and then uh, and uh, building on sort of the fool's yield thesis. And this is an idea Greg created. This idea of fool's yield, which is just so brilliant and and, and captures so much about the way credit markets work. And then it, I think on March 22nd or March 23rd uh, he wrote a piece called "What to Buy First and why you should go buy high yield bonds and even investment grade corporate bonds uh, uh, right now. Like it was just like go buy them today, right now uh, because the bargains are so crazy. So it, it was just uh, nailing nailing the cycle. So so Greg, I'll, I'll I'll turn it over to you.
0: I mean, fool's yield is this is is something that I think. Um... And I'm actually going to credit Dan with some of the, the language around it, because he, he can he can really spin, it, spin a yarn. But, um, uh, you know, one of the things, you know, I, I've been in the credit markets for many, many years. And I think, like most young people, when I get into the market, you think that the way you're going to make all your money is to go buy the highest yielding bond, right? And you're going to be smarter than everybody else. And you're going to just, you're you're better at picking credit. You're going to pick this high yielding bond and you're going to make a ton of money, right? Uh, And then, I think what ends up happening is that sometimes works, but the times it doesn't work end up hurting a lot more than the times it does, right? And so you buy a whole bunch of high-yielding bonds, and you actually do a lot worse than that guy that went out and bought a whole bunch of low-yielding bonds, but got that that yield. And and in credit markets, what we see is that, especially when the high-yield spread is tight, like it is today, for example, Mm -hmm. and like it was in January 2020. Um, the right, the right way to make money and actually to make more money than a lot of other people is to go buy the stuff that's actually going to pay you its yield. And that never looks very attractive relative to the super yieldy bonds, the super sexy, low, you know, high, low end of high yield bonds. Mm -hmm. Um, but history is borne out that the safest high yield bonds within, within the high yield category. I mean, and people like, um, People love to call them junk bonds, and they are junk bonds. But the top end of high yield is actually companies that you know, really big, steady companies. HCA Healthcare is one. Netflix actually has high yield bonds, right? Um, Those bonds end up being the highest returning bonds in the high yield space, despite the fact that they have the lowest yields. Um, And they even end up doing a little bit better than their yield for reasons that are a little complicated to go into, but they get paid off early, sometimes at a premium. Mm-hmm. So you can do really, really well um, on high yield bonds in an environment like today, like Dan was saying, you know the, if 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 the market's tight, spreads are tight, there's not a lot of return opportunities. Sometimes the best thing to do is to go into the stuff that's guaranteed to give you not guaranteed, but very likely to give you the return it promises.
2: Mm-hmm. And so speaking of which, you know triple C bonds the the yield to worst is now at like six and a quarter. And we have spreads on triple C bonds at like 620 and they're super compressed. They're almost at like generational lows. What the hell do you do if you're a massive allocator at this point? Like, can you step away or are you forced to invest in this stuff, you know, even at such outrageously low yields?
0: Well, I think it's interesting. I think a lot of people look at, um, and this is exactly. The challenge, right? You look at high yield and you say, oh, "The spreads are really low. There's no way I'm going to touch this. I'm going to touch high yield." And I would agree with you on triple C's. I, mean, I think triple C's at this point, you know, they they don't have a good track record of delivering their yield. Uh, they don't mm-hmm. even come close. Um, and so you want a little premium on those. But high yield in general, and, and and high yield, especially the upper end of high yield, just because it's honest about where expected returns are doesn't mean you should avoid it, because everything else might have low and probably does have low expected returns as well. Mm-hmm. So the interesting thing about credit and, and think about investment grade, low investment grade high and you know, high, high yield is that it's a contract. They're going to pay The bond is due in seven years or 10 years or five years. And on that date, they have to give you all your money back, right? There's just so long as that company is not going to fall, there's only so low that bond can go. And oh, by the way, you're getting paid to wait, right? They're sending you a coupon payment every six months. Mm -hmm. So when you start to think about assets that are attractive in an environment, when expected returns are low, it ends up being that asset that's being pretty honest about where those expected returns are. It's just telling you where they are. It's not, it's, I mean, yes, would I prefer to buy high yield at 1200 over? Yes, I would. Would I prefer to buy high yields with super low, super high spreads? Yes, I would. But if I have to put money to work, and I want to make sure I get that money back, then some, some high quality credit actually sounds pretty good right now. And I'd also say triple C credit doesn't. Again, we're right back to where we were before. It doesn't look particularly attractive um, right now.
2: Yeah, yeah. I've used that as uh, you know my macro gauge since you guys kind of like tipped me onto it last year. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a, a great, card.
0: it's a great gauge.
2: Yeah. It really is one of the, the strongest, you know, indicators for, for future returns, et cetera. But let's step into the negative yielding, uh, real yielding debt phenomenon that we have here, because I can't square it in my brain. Like, how the heck do you have junk bonds trading at negative yields? And it's got to be as a, as a debt investor. Meaning inflation is higher than the yield you're getting on the nominal rate of the bond, the coupon of the bond. How, as a, a debt investor, do you wrap your head around that? Do you just say, hey, I've got these liabilities to meet, I'm a, I'm a life insurance company, and I don't care if inflation is up at 5% for a year or two, I'll still buy the, the 4.9% yielding bond. Is that how it kind of works?
0: Well, I think, and let's be clear. So, when you say negative yielding, um, what's going on is that the one-year inflation rate, right, is high, right? Yeah. Now. Yes. And, then, yes. Um, and the yields on bonds are paid over many, many years, right? So it's really mm-hmm. the, the right benchmark's actually the break-even inflation r- rates five and ten years out, which are which are lower. So just just to put that in context, so it's actually this there's actually macro
2: number. guy versus real debt investors.
0: Yeah. Yeah. No, so, no, 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 uh, no. but but I'll tell you what's even more negative. Than, than mm-hmm. negative yielding, but cash. If you do that measure, cash is really negative, right? Oh, yeah. So, um, I mean, if you want to if you want to talk, I mean, have you, I have never heard of negative negative yielding cash. That's going to be terrible. Yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, that's really the way you need to think about it, and that's the way they are thinking about it. They're like, well, I could, yeah, I, mean, I don't want to go into something that's negative yielding, so I'll keep it in this. Oh, wait, that's worse. Um, yeah. And sort of yeah. that's the that's the math that's going on right now, and. So, and, and I think the reality, you have to say, is that a lot of the market is looking forward and they're they're not pricing inflation break-evens at levels that deliver negative, negative yields to high yield over time. So so they're not. So that, that's actually the sophisticated market investors aren't there and they're not looking at the one-year inflation rate. Um, this, of course, gets into the whole transitory argument, which I'm not – I mean, the, the bond markets have spoken. Yields are going down. Treasury rates are low. Break-evens are fairly low. So, mm-hmm. uh, and by the way, when I say break evens for everybody, I'm talking about the tips versus the, the treasury inflation, um, protected securities versus the the, the the normal treasuries. And so you can sort of figure out where the market thinks future inflation rates are over time. That's what I'm referring to. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, so I think, I, listen, but is the observation that yields are very low right now, correct? Absolutely. Yields are very low right now. Um Yeah, bond yields especially, especially government bond yields, tend to be a fairly good indicator of where the market sees real growth. And so the market's telling you that real growth is also about. Um, And so you have to put that into context. And again, would I prefer to be investing in 1983? Yes, I would. It would be amazing. But we're not there right now. We have to live with the choices we're given. Yep.
2: One of the best arguments I've heard, I don't know if you guys know uh, Mark Hart, he runs Corriente. He's like, if you have inflation at, you know, say 2%, and then productivity gains at 2%, you're actually losing 4% on your cash that you hold instead of, you know, uh, being part of the stock market or a, a basket of goods that, you know, goes up with inflation and productivity. And we're at 5% inflation. Transitorily, and then five percent productivity gain. So you're actually getting punished almost ten percent temporarily. You know, it's probably those numbers are going to change fast, but still, you know, maybe say it's five percent by holding cash. And we're that's why we're in this like weird post-truth world where I see the triple C spread coming down, right? And it's it's showing me that like spreads are are collapsing but at the same time i can't hold cash so herein lies like this is why like i kind of started the podcast it's like what the hell do you do as a millennial a zoomer in that scenario like where the hell do you put your money because like you get punished if you hold cash waiting for you know assets to reprice you you, you basically have to play if you want to play a conservative you buy like a good you know corporate bond i guess you know, uh, you know, above the rate of inflation, and equities are priced to like infinity at this point. So, like, what what do you do? What's you what's your recommendation right
1: now? Yeah, I think I, you know, look, it's a tough market, right? You have overvalued equities, you have inflation risk, and you have, you know, low yielding bonds. Um, so, what do you what do you do? Um, and I think I think right now uh, we're sort of in this phase where. We're certainly in a rising, and we, we, we think of you know those four quadrants, we still think we're in a, a rising inflation environment. Uh, and we're teetering between a rising growth and a falling growth environment. Um, and it's sort of TBD where that lands. Um, now, what works across both falling growth and rising growth in high inflation environments is, is actually large quality. Um, it's, it's, it's big, profitable, growing businesses. Um, that do really well in the sort of later cycle inflationary stages. So companies like, you know, Domino's or Nike or, right, you know, these really, really big behemoths that are doing well. in the fang stocks, right, many of those are really highly profitable, high growth, um, high quality stocks. Um, and, and that's sort of what you're seeing, right? Now, those stocks are really richly valued. Um, but in the later cycle stages, when there's high inflation, um, you know oftentimes those valuations don't get punished now what you have to watch out for is right when that um uh, that falling growth um uh falling growth uh rising inflation switches into falling growth uh falling inflation and you start to enter a recession or a crisis in which case you're going to really wish you own some fixed income so i think that's sort of a tactical short-term tactical uh argument i think for long-term sort of buy and hold uh investments i think you know, small cap value is still, in my mind, the best performing asset for long-term buy and hold. Uh, and I think if you want to be more conservative and your, uh, you know, 3 to 4% return is acceptable to you, you know, the opportunities in double B and triple B are quite attractive in, in corporate
2: fixed income. And I, I guess uh, kind of pivoting to something I heard from Peter Thiel. he talks about this is the era of indeterminate optimism, which is kind of like... I envision as, you know, stretch for yield. Like you don't want to like invest out in, you know, innovation and very, very volatile things. You try to squeeze yield out of, you know, pockets of the economy, economy to make it more efficient. So how does that at scale? I guess we're at this confluence where, you know, you have an aging demographic. They don't want to be investing in the crazy, you know, venture capital sphere and, So could we be in this perpetual machine of like just low yields for the next 10 years? Is that possible while the government kind of just keeps kicking these fiscal plans every time growth kind of slows down? Is that like the macro backdrop we could be in? And I guess theoretically...
1: Greg's probably the deflationist of the two of us, so maybe maybe I'll let you uh, uh, argue for that and I'll argue um, against it. The answer is, honestly, I don't know. I mean, the the,
0: the long history of high-debt economies is they that they stay <laughs> the rates for a, for a while um, and that the term takes many years to start and, and to happen, right? So it just takes longer than you'd expect for the rates to come up. But mm-hmm. we never stay in the same spot, right? I mean, we never... There's no such thing, I think, as as forever in financial markets. Something always happens something, something corrects. Um, and so one of the one of the hard things is that, you know, while I invest in bonds, they're not the perfect answer. They're the right answer for some environments and those, 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 those sometimes the environment's right and sometimes it's not. So it's a good thing to have in your portfolio. Would I ever argue it's the only thing you should have in your portfolio? No, never. Right. You need, you're going to need commodities at some point. You're going to need quality growth at some point. You're going to quality stocks, You're going to need, you're going to want some really risky assets in a, in a, uh, in, a in a recession, um, to, to write it back. Um, but, uh, no, I think the, the one thing I'd say to people as well, it always feels like today is going to be like tomorrow. That's not the way it actually plays out and opportunities do come along. Um,
1: mm-hmm.
0: and sometimes they're more obvious than others. Um, and sometimes in a, when there's not a good opportunity getting paid what I would say about fixed income in my world is it pays you to wait. So you don't have to think very hard about what, you know, you own because you own a contract and you might, and then when there's better opportunities down the road, that's when you're going to be really glad you owned that contract and you can, you can spin into those other opportunities. I'll let Dan talk about his, his view of the, of the world.
1: No, I think that was very elegantly put. I think, I think, Sometimes if the answer of what to do isn't obvious, that's okay, right? Then prepare for when it is obvious, right? Um, if you said, gee, you know I, I, I'd love to buy. Um, I'd love to really go deep into the equity market. I'd love to have a hundred percent equity portfolio, but now it doesn't look like the time. We' well, you know, define what the time looks like, right? Okay, the next time the & p 500 goes down twenty percent, then I'm going to be a hundred percent equity, right? Like it's okay to wait. Um, And then think about what you're going to do while you wait, right? And I think um, cash isn't the best answer, right? It's, you know, kind of a bad answer. I think, you know, fixed income is a marginally better answer, Um, you know, and you have to think about what the right answer is while you wait. But I think it's okay to acknowledge when you're in a low return world, you can accept that low return, right? You don't need to say... Gee, I'm going to take this colossal risk, right? I, I'm not fulfilling my expected return goals in the asset mix that's available to me today. So now let's, you know, dump it all into avocado farms in Russia or something, right? Like, it's like, no, no, just wait, right? Like, wait until some really good, reasonable stuff is cheap and you can buy that then. And I think that's core to our, our, our counter-cyclical and crisis investing approach and what we're trying to really help people think through and, and build on.
2: I'd love to get your perspective on the whole private equity thing, because I know you've been a uh, kind of like leaning against the wind in, in that sort of capital allocation bucket. Can you talk about, I think you said uh, there's been a 7x increase in private equity assets since 2008. And what happened during the pandemic with those assets? And is that whole cycle kicked off again? Like, what what are the... The pension funds are they still allocating towards that? Um, I'd to hear your thoughts.
1: Yeah, I think private equity is still you know everybody's number one favorite thing to invest in. Everybody, all the big institutional investors are taking up their al- taking up their allocations. Um, it's something that they're have looking back and saying this has been the best performing thing in my portfolio. I wish I'd done more, um, and. I think if you abstract away and say, okay, not private equity specifically, but what has happened with similar things that met the following criteria? They've done really well. Everybody was increasing their allocation. The size of the asset class was, mul- you know, going up by multiples, right? Like by seven X over 10 years, uh, and D it was illiquid, right? Like, you go back and the fact pattern of things that meet those criteria has looked really scary right really scary right like and I think if you think oh I'm gonna earn really high returns by doing this thing that deliver that everybody agrees delivers high returns and that everyone else is allocating to um, you know be careful and I, I think there's a great paper out of Harvard and think called they call it competition neglect right and it's it's everybody invests in things that they perceive to have, the highest expected returns, without realizing that they have competition, that other people are also investing in that thing, that they, the same thing, they're seeing the same fact pattern, they're doing the same thing. And so the more that your decision is aligned with consensus, the greater the risk you have, that competition neglect is going to come in and bite you. And that five years down the road, you're going to say, well, why didn't that investment I make pan out? And you're going to say, well, there are five other people that made the exact same investments. Maybe they didn't put the money in private equity fund A, they put it in private equity fund B. But when that asset went up for sale, private equity fund A and B bid on it and drove the price up. Um, And now I'm left with a poor return because we paid too much. Uh, What a surprise, right? I mean, I think that you sort of learn and relearn these lessons of markets. Um, And I think any decent student of history sort of sees these patterns. Um, And there's always something new. There's always something exciting. Maybe it was emerging markets and commodities in the mid-2000s. Definitely private equity and, and tech right now. It was Internet stocks in the 90s. It was country mutual funds in the 80s, you know, Japan in the 80s. I mean, and you just see what the end result of all that was. And you just say, wow, you know, people just need to be a bit more prudent and avoid the hot new thing and especially avoid allocating huge amounts of money um, when that hot new thing is becoming the hot thing everybody is doing that's not new anymore.
2: How hard is it to convince somebody when you've been telling them in a bull market this is happening? When that cycle turns, to, do they have the capital? Are you like, hey, save the capital when the air comes out, give it to us, we'll put it to work, and we're going to kill it? Like, Are people just forced into – because the incentives of the endowment and pension models, they're forced to invest in those things. Do they have a pocket of capital to give you when those times hit?
1: Yeah, I think you see different behavior from different investor types. I mean, I think you see a lot of a lot of people who made the money themselves. So call it your high net worth and family offices. A lot of people that made money themselves um, or especially people that run businesses tend to keep a reserve, you know, sort of a rainy day fund. Right. It's just instinct. Right. It's just this animal instinct of like, gee, you know, the times are good. Why don't I stash some money away somewhere safe? Um, so what we found is that those people almost all have money in yeah. times of crisis, right? In fact, their problem is they have too much money, right? I mean, they just have too much in cash, too much in low-reserve assets. And you're sort of saying, well, gee, you know, you could probably be a little more aggressive in your asset allocation. You saying, well, well, that's not how I ran my business. That's not how I want to run my family money, right? You're still like, okay, I get it. Um, on the other hand, you have the people that are professionals, right, who are usually 100% allocated. Um, and the money they put into something new has come out of somewhere else. And, you know, I think in times of crisis, um, they tend to be battening down the hatches and trying not to do anything, and trying to just sit out and wait, you know, rather than having the money or the psychological reserve to be really aggressive. Um, that's sort of what we found. Um, but you know, obviously, there's huge diversity of investor types, and they're uh, obviously very pro-cyclical foundations and family offices and high net worth, and there are very counter-cyclical endowments uh, and pension funds. And I think, you know, I think it's finding like-minded people. Um, and, um, uh, you know, gee, I think the people that were really excited about tech and innovation and growth and, you know, for the last decade have probably done a lot better than the contrarians and the, you know, more academic folks, uh, uh, which I get. But, you know, every style has time in the sun. And I think that the, uh, the sexy tech innovation hype meme stock growth craziness it probably has had its time. So, in
2: the so sun. since you brought it up. I have a like, it's, it's pretty popular theory now, but like generationally, you know, you see that chart where it's like boomers own all the assets, then, you know, silent generation owns a little bit, boomers the majority, then Gen X is like here, millennials and and zoomers are like negligible. So if you take that as them choking the float of all these assets, because they're sitting on massive generational capital gains, they're not going to, trade out of them, generally speaking. it's a, The tradable float gets smaller and smaller and smaller, especially because they're getting older and older, right? And I guess what I'm trying to wrap my head around is, you know, what happens when those assets change hands? And I guess like, is this phenomenon in GameStop and AMC, is that just all like, hey, they choked the float and they put all their money now in passive. Passive doesn't sell, like you said, it's inelastic. We're, we're seeing all these like generational things happen all at the same time where it, it creates that inelasticity where the incremental dollar creates the convexity of, of prices at the, the end of the cycle. What are, your, what are your guys' thoughts on that? And are you seeing like, as long as the Fed and is sopping up even more supply it's like pouring lighter fluid on this phenomenon and killing market structure and killing, you know, I guess my my read is the middle class because you never like let the things adjust, right? You're just literally handing money over to all asset owners. That's my perspective, but I'm curious if you guys have any thoughts on that, getting into the political realm. Yeah.
1: Yeah. No, I think that, I mean, your point around inelasticity and market structure and the changes that we've experienced in that over time are, are, are very right. I mean, I think you've seen a shift. Um, you've seen a shift from people owning individual stocks to people owning funds that, you know, sort of peaked and call it 2010, and now it's probably at equilibrium. And then within that, a shift from active to passive. Um, and so the sort of free traded float that sort of Driven by price considerations um, relative to just being driven by flows. And by the way, passive funds are, create more inelasticity than active funds, and active funds create more inelasticity than individual owners. So you're, you're looking at a market where flows become more important to outcomes. Um, and so I think what what is what do you what do you do with that insight? Um, I think what you have to realize is that. You know, look, we're valuation-sensitive investors. We're we, we're small-cap value guys, right? Or we're you know high-yield investors, right? We're we're very focused on yield and cash flow multiples and things like this. Um, but I think you can't abstract valuation considerations or myopically focus on valuation without understanding the importance of trend and flows uh, and monitoring those trends and flows. And and Greg has this thing about inflation where he says you know. Um, we're, we're not going to do anything about inflation until we see the whites of its eyes. Right. Until we actually see it happening, we're yes. not going to act. Right. And I think there's something about that with some of these market bubbles. Right. It's like, well, when's the bubble going to burst? It's like, I don't know, but it could go on for a heck of a long time. Um, and I think there's another another mentor of mine who said, he said, it's, it's much easier to know what will happen than when, when it will happen. I know that overvalued things will eventually crash. I don't know when it will happen. Um, and I know that there are a lot of these market structure and inelasticity forces that are providing a very powerful way for that market to lever, ever upwards. Uh, and if you think about what you want to do as a prudent allocator of capital, maybe the best thing you can do is just be sensitive to trend and just, you know, get out when the trend reverses itself. But do you really want to be on the side of uh, be betting against some of these sort of tidal forces that seem to be driving flows in and out of different parts of the market?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think um, I, I'll just say again, nothing ever stays the same, right? So you get these narratives in the market on, I think, market structure, and I think they're right. Um, and it's easy to tie yourself in knots, thinking that, oh, well, it's impossible. The market's going to keep going up, but it's not fundamental because it's 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 flows. It's driven by gamma flips in option. Something <laughs> was it? I mean, and and you and you try to understand it, and you get and you tie yourself up trying to understand it. And the reality is that you know, there is a there for most stocks there still is a valuation anchor. You might not like it; it might be higher value than you like it now. But it, they, they do follow rules. Um, there are always people are always building. Um, people are always inventing. There are the, the, there are new companies coming into the, the stock market. There are companies exiting the stock market. Um, there's a there's still a lot of dynamism. Maybe not as much as we'd like. Um, like if you sort of just then focus on the opportunities, focus on the individual stocks, you'll find that the overall narrative isn't important to that analysis at all, or, or is, is important to you how you structure your portfolio potentially, but not how you look at individual opportunities. Um, and so I, I would say that don't get, don't get, uh, I, I do think it's, I think, pretty, I think it's a hard time to invest right now. I think returns, are, expected returns are low, but their expected returns are low for everybody. Right, there's not like there's a group of investors out there that has secretly high expected returns that we don't know about, or maybe they are, but and I don't know who they are. Mm-hmm. Um, and, I did, uh, I
2: global or something, I don't know. Yeah,
0: yeah. <laughs> and so you've just got to focus on the opportunities that are presented to you and try to make the best decisions possible in that environment. And things will change; there will be opportunities that come along. And by the way, so I don't—I mean, did it cause me the deflationist? I don't. I mean, I, I don't know what's going to happen with inflation. I just think that you can wait for that opportunity to present itself before you act on it without getting yourself spun up in a narrative that forces you to act earlier, do things that are because of the narrative, not because of the data you're seeing in front of your face.
2: Mm -hmm. Speaking of market structure, you guys might enjoy this one. So I used to trade at like a hundred billion dollar fund and it was so touchy. Like you couldn't trade around a position because used to be like 30% of trading volume during the day on a stock. And now you can only be like 5% because it's the market structure is so screwed up because passive and HFT and et cetera. So like
1: navigating
2: this thing was like the guy who did it, he's a high yield guy, but like smartest guy I've ever met in the biz. And it he could only buy things when the liquidity presented itself. Like he, he was like a counter cyclical. Like when a sector sold off, he was buying it. When you know, and and it's it's funny when you guys speak. That's a similar sort of sort of mindset um, of of how you deal and you think about liquidity because you know small cap stocks and you know high yield, which pretty much everybody else in the market, I think, they just don't pay attention to. Is and one of my favorite lines is like "price is a liar, price is an equilibrium liquidity." Like, yeah, what John Burbank said is so good but uh so i guess my point is uh, things will change it could get ugly when when it does reverse but the last question i know you guys got a jet in a few is what do you think of bitcoin because blockworks is set up to kind of like bridge the gap between digital currencies and macro finance and we're bulls on on bitcoin there's a guy named uh greg foss Jesus, I'm talking a lot. I'm sorry. But the guy, Greg Foss, is a high-yield trader. I'm, I'm not sure if you know him, Greg. It's the high-yield market is pretty tiny. And he's like, Bitcoin is actually CDS on sovereign debt. He, he, and he's got this whole model that says, you know, when, when sovereign debt actually rises, like, you're going to want to own Bitcoin. How do you guys think about Bitcoin and digital assets?
1: Yeah, it's funny. We've got uh, our, our, the junior analyst on our, our team, uh, Johan. Uh, is uh, he we have a, his job is right now is researching currencies. Um, and we've bracketed Bitcoin. That's part of his purview. And and actually, interestingly, um, he worked at a Bitcoin startup right out of college. Uh, and so, um, so, you know, I think it's something that we, you have to understand, right? It's, a, it's cryptocurrencies are a big enough part of the market that you have to have a view, you have to study them. Um, and so, you know, I'd say, are, are we there in terms of investing institutional money in Bitcoin? No. Um, are we taking it seriously as something that needs to be studied? Uh, absolutely. Um, and I, you know, I think uh, actually, Johan says there, there's some cool factor work to be done on, on, on Bitcoin. Uh, and and Johan's actually done some, I will share it on our, our weekly research, but, but you can actually see some of the predictors of Bitcoin movements and a lot of it's very flows driven and, and market structure driven, which is quite interesting. Mm-hmm. So, um, uh, maybe not surprising, but, but yeah, I think it's, it's, it's very interesting and, and who knows how it'll turn out.
2: Well, when you guys get that model done and uh, want to come talk about it, I'd love to have you back.
1: Awesome. We'd love that. Thank you, Todd. All
2: right. Well, thank you guys so much for uh, speaking. It's been a pleasure. Our
1: pleasure. Well, thank, thank you, you. Todd. It's a lot yeah. of fun.
2: Talk soon. Take care.